Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science, mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome a special guest and friend, Dr. Laura Wood. Dr. Wood went to medical school, completed her PhD, anatomic pathology residency, and fellowship training in GI pathology at Johns Hopkins, where she is now an associate professor of pathology and oncology. And within the Division of Gastrointestinal and Liver Pathology, she serves as the Interim Director and the Associate Director of Research Affairs. She has widely published, speaks nationally and worldwide, teaches all levels of medical trainees, and runs a lab where she supervises additional trainees. On a personal note, I find Laura to be one of the funniest, smartest, and kindest people I have encountered during my training. We spent a year in a very small room while both fellows at Johns Hopkins, her and GI and me and GY and pathology, and I still use Laura as an example in my head of how to be both accomplished and intelligent while also being kind and all around awesome. So Dr. Wood, Laura, how are you? And thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing well. How are you? As well as it can be expected, I've been workshopping this. I think 2020 okay is my answer. <laughs> yeah. That's, Adjusted for 2020. You detail people really yeah. want. When like, they do you really want to know that I'm, I'm scraping by? That sounds sympathetic. I'm, I'm okay for 2020. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm in the same place. Okay, good. So could you tell me, tell everyone a little bit more about yourself, aside from the info I provided above, how you came to be working where you do specifically, I think you have a very interesting story about sort of coming from Ohio and did you come from a scientific family and why did you choose medicine? Sure. So I actually grew up in small town, kind of rural Ohio. I did not come from a, a medical family. My parents were both public school teachers, both now retired, both taught middle school, which I still can't imagine dealing with that age of kids for 40 years. Me um, neither. My dad taught seventh grade math and my mom taught eighth grade science. They were both actually the first generation in their families to go to college. None of my grandparents went to college. My one side of my family, they were cattle farmers and my grandfather worked in a coal mine. Did you say cattle farmers? Cattle. Cow. Cattle. Okay. Sorry, cattle farmers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that makes a lot more sense. I apologize. I was like, oh, that's something I haven't heard of. Tea kettles. No, no, they, they had beef cattle. Yeah. And then the other side was in New York City and had a candy store. But that side, like my grandfather never even graduated from high school. So I am the first in my family to go on to any sort of advanced degree in medicine or, or science. Though with my mom as a science teacher, she always had me do the science fairs in middle school and used to, you know, practice my presentation with me. And I still, when I give talks, I still think of my mom making me like stand in front of her bedroom mirror and, and rehearse my, you know, explanation for my project of how much vitamin C is in different types of orange juice or, or you know, these little, these little middle school science projects that I did. Yeah, but it put it down deep in your brain. So that's why you're... It did. And she would always pretend to be a judge from the science fair and make up really funny names and like try to get me to break. It was really, <laughs> really funny. <laughs> I love your mom. <laughs> That's great. So how did you how did you end up choosing medicine? Like how did you decide? To yeah, I mean, I think I went into undergrad thinking I wanted to do science and biology and I kind of came around to medicine kind of you know, kind of the middle of middle of undergrad thinking I wanted to, you know, the reason we all kind of do to to help people to use kind of scientific excellence to to improve people's lives. And then so I applied into into Hopkins Strait MD. And then my senior year of college, I got involved in doing some research. I went to the College of William and Mary down in Virginia, which is a very you know, undergraduate focused institutions, it was like super basic research on nuclear export of thyroid hormone receptors. So not much clinically applicable there, but I really 
got bitten by the research bug senior year of college and then came to Hopkins as a straight MD and then applied into MD PhD program that year and then ended up kind of switching tracks and and then staying on for my my MD PhD at Hopkins and then doing doing the whole rest. My CV is very easy because I've only ever been one place. Yeah. <laughs> I only had to, yeah, one institution, but just uh, stayed the course. Lots and lots of work at that institution. So you're doing an MD PhD. How did you come to choose pathology and specifically GI pathology? Was yeah. there a person or an experience? A few different ones. I mean, I came in always, always kind of differentiated as someone who wanted to study cancer, you know, having had several family members be troubled by cancer and then always, you know, from a biological level, finding it to be a really kind of intriguing question and process to investigate. And I, you know, when I was picking PhD labs, I I ended up in a cancer lab on purpose. I wanted to do cancer, but I always thought of myself as as doing medical oncology. And then when I was in that lab, there was a Swedish postdoc who I'm still friends with. She's back in Sweden now, who was was going to be a pathologist. And she's like, oh, you should really look into pathology. And I was like, okay, you know, I'll think about it. And then as I went back to the wards and went, you know, started doing my clinical stuff, I realized that, you know, Oncology is obviously very, very challenging. You have to be really smart to do it, but it's really focused on therapy and focused on designing the best therapies and managing these complex regimens and really challenging side effects. And that wasn't what really got me excited about about cancer. It was more the the diagnostic side and then also kind of understanding it on a cellular and biological level. So then I I did some time in pathology and realized that that was that was really a good place for me. And I'm also just a very visual person. You know, mm-hmm. in med school, I'd get a test question and I would like picture the page in my notes where like that answer was, you know, so I think I have a very That's visual very brain. I'm like, well, suited in that way to pathology. Yeah, I do that as well. I can visualize the, the place in the notes. I'm not saying I can always recall the facts, but at least I, <laughs> no. I know where it's supposed to be in my brain. And That's I think the I- ultimate frustration when you can see the page, but you can't actually... Yep get to the test answer. It's like, well, brain, why do you remember the, the pointless stuff and not the stuff I actually need to know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were in a lab doing oncology work and then your third and fourth year you went back and you sort of realized maybe the clinical part of it was not as well suited. So you ended up yeah, and I mean, my my PhD experience was was also very basic. We did cancer genomics before next generation sequencing existed. So we we sequenced tumor exomes with with Sanger sequencing, which is a really terrible idea. It's a really bad way to do it because you mm-hmm. have to do two hundred thousand different PCR and sequencing reactions per tumor. So you know, we now think of oh, I'll just send off the NGS panel. It's super easy. <laughs> this is like two hundred thousand individual reactions, and then each one of those gives you a Sanger sequencing trace that you then have to analyze. So it's a ridiculous amount of work to do it that way. But that was what I did for my PhD, which also kind of, you know, dovetails into pathology as well. So it was a very kind of basic molecular biology focused PhD in cancer. And you were in Dr. Vogelstein's lab. Yeah, I was in Bert Vogelstein's lab and was an amazing experience. And it, it's fun now to have my lab in kind of the next building over and I still get to interact with him some. And he, um, he still gives me great feedback on my my ideas and my science. He, <laughs> at one point, I had an idea that he didn't think was very good, and I did it anyway. And I showed him the results, and he's like, "Wow, that's way more interesting than I thought it would be." Which is not <laughs> the same thing as saying that it was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> the delta from the the basement, which is where I thought that was going to land, and where you got it, that's pretty good. You're like, "Yeah, hmm, I'm like, not sure oh, if that's a compliment." <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, it's interesting that you, I just last week interviewed Dr. Laura Hedrick Ellenson, excuse me, and she did 
her work, her early work, I, I believe after her, she did her residency at Hopkins in his lab and ended up doing GYN pathology. But she was working in the early days of um, Lynch syndrome and he was working on that. And there was someone else who was doing early immunohistochemical work with, I think, PMS2 or something like that, you know? And now we think about everything that people had to go through to do IHC back then. It was like fresh oh, yeah. doing all this nonsense. And now you're talking about like singer sequencing and how, you know, passe it is, but it wasn't that long ago that you were doing your PhD. No, so. and like my, my office neighbor is, is, Dr. Jim Eshelman, who is a senior molecular pathology faculty member at Hopkins. And he talks about the days when like, if you needed a primer to do PCR, you know, now we just like paste the sequence into, into some browser on IDT's website or in Beecherton's website and order it. But he's like, you'd have to get the sequence and you'd like walk it down to biochemistry mm-hmm. and you'd like find the guy who knew how to make primers. And he would stare at it for like 20 minutes and be like, I think I can make this come back in a month, you know, and that was <laughs> you get a primer. Uh, yeah. It's, it's like, and, you know, Jim is not, he's a, you know, senior faculty member. He's not that old. Like it wasn't yeah. that long ago that, that, that this was like this. It's amazing how, how much and has it, changed. Yeah. And it, it's, I'm sure you're better at imagining it than me, but picturing what 10 or 15 years, like what we'll be looking back and being like, oh my gosh, can you believe we did X? So yeah. Can you believe uh, we did it this way? Can you believe we thought this was how X, Y, or Z actually happened? It'll seem so, yeah. <laughs> so silly. I don't know. I don't know if you do this as regular as I do it. Like I'm giving a talk or something. I do like a really deep dive and I start reading papers in the nineties. I'm just like, wow, it was a whole different world. (laughs) And again, like the people who are writing those papers in the 90s are still writing papers now. It's not like 100 years ago. It's really, no, they weren't doing anything wrong. It's just like the the methods and even sometimes like, you know, because tumors keep getting reclassified. And so you have to try and think back to what they meant when they used a term. And so it's just amazing to me how quickly things change. So we'll talk a little bit about you uh, writing papers since we're talking about papers. You publish mostly about pancreatic pathology you do a lot of work. Your research combines cancer genomics and pancreatic pathology in order to characterize, and this is a quote from your <laughs> the molecular alterations that drive pancreatic tumor genesis, which is just very lovely. So did you always know, like back when you were practicing orange juice science fair projects that you wanted to be in academics? Did you know, or it seems like it kind of happened when you were in college, you said you got bitten by the bug, but what made you focus on doing this, this particular like pancreatic research and what are what do you see is happening in your field and what are you excited about right now yeah i think you know i i you know in phd i did a lot with genomics so i've always been kind of interested in molecular alterations and tumor genesis and then Natalie, as I know you know, at Hopkins, there's a big pancreatic, a collaborative pancreatic research research group with, you know, Dr. Huban and pathology kind of leading our side of it, but then also folks in oncology and folks in surgery. Mm-hmm. And I ended up kind of working with that group as a resident and as a fellow and just really enjoying that kind of team and collaborative atmosphere. And certainly pancreatic cancer is a very important tumor type to study. And, and I I think we have important work to do there, but that's not to say it's the only important one. Obviously, there's mm-hmm. there's many others, but I think it is a really important tumor type. It's a great time to be studying it because we know enough that we can ask some deeper questions, but it's not like everything has worked out either. And I just, I love the Pancreatic Cancer Research Group at Hopkins, and I've been really fortunate to find a, find a great scientific home here where we can do, you know, my lab does a lot with tissue-based genomics research and multi-region analysis of precursor lesions, and then we have some some cool collaborations with, you know, computational biology folks who can who can reconstruct tumor evolution with with the sequencing data that we create. And then we, we've been doing some other really neat stuff with 3D pathology, actually. 
So either using uh, tissue clearing to to look at pancreatic cancers in 3D or to, to actually serially section a giant block and then 3D reconstruct it that way. So we've been mm. kind of pushing 2D into 3D in pathology. So that's been that's been fun too. And I I really credit the collaborative environment here, you know, from computational biology to, to engineering. We have several collaborators in engineering who do like amazing math that I, I can't pretend to understand. But then we can really, I think, as physician scientists, bring it back to clinically important questions and also make sure we study human tissue. There's certainly a lot to be learned from model systems, and I don't want to want to knock the mouse the mouse modelers. But at the same time, we can really make the human disease the touchstone and make sure that whatever folks are doing in model systems actually relates to humans and is relevant to humans. And I, I think that as pathologists and as scientists, that's something really unique that we can contribute. Yeah. And I will say two things. One, I was in the frozen room in the surgical pathology suite for the two years I did my GYN fellowships. I didn't go anywhere near a pancreatic frozen. And I don't even know how often you all freeze those. But I do know that when a Whipple would come in, there was this well-oiled machine of how they were triaged and there were you know, special protocols for how this, the specimen was evaluated. And I know that one of the great things about having people like you closely related to clinical medicine and like sort of bridging the gap between research and clinical is that you can handle the specimen and take the relevant clinical sections, right? But also make sure that there's tissue to do the work you need to do, which I think if you're in a center that doesn't have as many Whipples or as many specimens as Hopkins, that gets harder to do, right? Because it doesn't come as regularly. Yeah. Um, no, they had the they yeah. still page Whipple team activate, which I yeah yeah such a funny thing. <laughs> it is it is it is, and it's not something you hear everywhere. I can tell you. So, and then the other thing is, when I was a cytopathology fellow at Johns Hopkins, I sort of got the downstream effect, or I suppose upstream effect of the pancreatic center because I saw more pancreatic FNAs than I think most people see in their career practically because all of the people coming to be treated would have their diagnoses confirmed right by the cytopathologist. Yeah. So it was like. I remember I would get to private practice and people, you know, you would see maybe one or two a month, if that, and I was seeing two or three sometimes a day. So it, it just, it doesn't, the, the point you're saying, it's like computational biologists and all these other people. It's not just the people involved in the project that get the benefit of sort of a center of excellence. It, it's everyone around and it sort of ripples up and downstream, which was For great. sure. And I yeah. think, especially with the the emphasis on pancreatic cancer research in pathology mm -hmm. Hopkins, and I, I give Dr. Huban a lot of credit for this, you know, there is the culture here to harvest from samples. And obviously patient care comes first and we get the yes. diagnostic sections first, yes. but then there's always tumor left over. And, you know, right. we grow fresh organoids from patients with cancer and use them to mm -hmm. investigate invasion and like mini mm -hmm. tumors and gels. And, you know, we yeah. can do all that because there's this emphasis on, you know, Obviously, with appropriate patient consent. Obviously, with the, the right. diagnostic stuff done first. But we there's a lot left that we can do with that tissue, which right. is which is really, right. it's really fun, and I think it's really impactful. And I think trainees get excited about it as well. You know, I have several PhD students who just love that they work on fresh human samples, and that yeah. you know, it yeah. makes their work much more exciting that they're not. Yeah. yeah. And, and the, from a director standpoint, which I know is a recent role for you, but just from an organizational standpoint, I know like the 5,000 things that probably go into making it so that that is even able to happen, which is just great. And that's yeah. why places like Hopkins are so vital so that, you know, you bring together all these smart people and throw them in a room and great things happen. So the thing yeah. I think that's fun about working, working on pancreas and mm -hmm. is that the pancreatic pathology community is not that big. Like there's, mm -hmm. there's not, you know, so we all kind of know each other well. And I've done a few projects where we wanted to study something kind of rare and you just, mm -hmm. you know, 
email your 10 friends around the world and be like, hey, mm-hmm. can you send me your cases of this that are really good? Mm-hmm. And it ends up making papers with author lists with like right. 100 affiliations. Yeah, it's like the United Nations. It's yeah. Very, yeah. A yeah. lot of our papers end up having like people from four continents on them because, mm-hmm. you know, people mm-hmm. from Japan, Korea, Italy, Holland, you know, Australia sent us their best case of X, Y, or Z, and then we sequenced it. So that, yeah. I think yeah. Is also- that- yeah, that's great. And that's also what's happening in GYM pathology. It's like, you know, they, they build these international consortiums and not only for uncommon tumors, which is it's sort of like table stakes. You can't report trends in something if you have three of them, right? But if you have 40 or 50, it's a lot easier. And then also just to come together to make consensus guidelines for things like tumor reporting and how we're talking about, you know, invasion and how we're talking about LVI. Like, are we all doing it the same? And if not, why are we doing it differently? And, and I'm sure those kinds of things are happening in pancreatic pathology too. And I think one of the great things about COVID is it's forced people to get comfortable with sort of virtual communication that maybe they didn't want to do before. So I'm hoping that doesn't go away and we keep doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And I mean, I think you know, I certainly miss work-related travel in some ways. It's it's fun to get to go see your colleagues who you enjoy and hang out in a fun place. But I think academic meetings, particularly like medium-sized ones, can be pretty effective online as well. And I've had, I've had a few good ones. And if they're well-designed with like the right breakout rooms and things like that, I think you can get a lot done. Yeah. And I also think it's, it's nice because it can involve people in parts of the world where travel is very expensive and they can't do it. Or as I think I made this point before, like when I was a young mom or when I was in community practice, I couldn't get a whole week off. You could still have people, you know, pop in to meet like parts of the meeting that they can join and not have to, you know, take yeah. a plane ride. And yeah, I don't have to fly to Asia for two days because I can't Ugh. be gone more than four. I did that a couple of times, you know, pre-COVID because my kids are small and yeah, I, four days oh, yeah. was, four days is my limit because more than that, like, it just stresses yeah. them out and it's not fair to my husband. No, I mean, and, and what you come yeah. home to, you're digging out from it for so long that it's just not worth it. Yeah, <laughs> so. exactly. But, well, but now, know. like, you know, I can participate yeah. in, in meetings abroad in a much easier way. In your pajama pants if you want. So, yeah. I do actually get dressed every day. <laughs> yeah, me one too. Doesn't, one doesn't have to. But psychologically, I feel like it helps me to be like, I'm going to work now. I'm going to wear my work shirt. And- I'm going to put on something besides shorts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I'm fancy. Yeah. So I was going to talk to you a little bit about grants. I do apply for grants. Nothing on the level of what you do. And in fact, when I had to apply for a grant, I you were the one I asked for help because this is just sort of like breathing for you. It seems like you get grants from a lot of different places. I can attest that this is a complicated, time-consuming process in the little tiny way that I do it. So for those who don't pursue the level of funding that you do, can you talk about what this process is like? And I assume that this is something you learned along the way as a PhD student, which I was not. And then given the state of the country, which when I wrote this outline, we did not know the outcome of the election, but now we do. So hopefully that will get better. But it seems like science had kind of been defunded and I know funding was stressed. So that must have been stressful. But what's happening with like talk about grant funding and then talk about how you see that as like the devaluation of science was sort of happening. And do you think it's going to get better? Can we yeah. do you have a reason to hope? Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'll start with the, the kind of process and then go to the more yeah. bigger futuristic questions. Yeah. So I think with writing grants, you just have to get two things. One is you have to get comfortable with spending a lot of time on something and then having somebody just be like, eh, I don't think so. And then they just don't fund <laughs> it. So, you, I mean. For, it's kind of like writing a manuscript a little bit, tiny bit. <laughs> but I feel like with manuscripts, you can usually find someone to take them at least. That's I mean, true. That's mine true. definitely don't all get in on the first shot to whatever yeah. generalize them to, but I've, yeah. I've made them all land somewhere. <laughs> okay, <laughs> always the got place it. I wanted it's it. The- but you can kind of 
you can usually get it in somewhere. With grants, I think it depends on the opportunity and it depends on kind of how specific the idea is for the, the funding opportunity. But you spend weeks to months on something and then you know the reviewers would be like meh I don't I don't think so and then you just say okay that that time got flushed so for you know smaller foundation grants that itself is not super cumbersome you know it's a few pages of, of an idea for you know R01 level grants it's you know 12 pages of science plus an incredible amount of additional documentation so it takes a long time to put together mm-hmm. and there's a very kind of specific language and format and there are specific rules to it of like what's good grantsmanship, so to speak. And they're they're not necessarily intuitive and all science doesn't necessarily fit in the box of good grantsmanship, but you kind of have to write it in such a way that you try to make it do so. Hmm. So a lot of it is kind of learning along the way the rules are, what reviewers want, what they like and don't like, figuring out how to craft what you actually want to do to fit that mold so that people will believe you that you can do it. Mm-hmm. And then and then selling it, selling it well in a grant. It takes a long time. And then you also just have to get the second thing you have to get used to is just having people say your ideas are garbage and not taking it to heart because, you know, and paper reviewers do this too. I think that's not unique to grants, but so many times people will be like, this idea is terrible for X, Y, or Z reason. And it may or may not even be legitimate. Sometimes the people just didn't understand it and you just have to get a thick skin about it and get used to the fact that people are just going to, you know, some people are going to love it. Some people are going to hate it. It also just feels very arbitrary. I can't tell you how many grants I've had where like reviewer one thought it was the best idea and going to cure cancer. Reviewer two thought it was complete garbage. And if one person doesn't like it, then you're, you're kind of hosed. And is it blinded or do they know who you are? They usually do know who you are because another Mm -hmm. part of the application process, especially for R01 funding, Mm -hmm. is kind of your previous productivity. So Uh, they want to make sure that they, it's not just the idea, right? It's who you are and whether- And how likely you are to basically follow through on it. Exactly. And you're going to do right, right. Yeah. And like, what's your history? Have you published a lot of last author papers? I was reading a Twitter thread this morning about, you know- kind of the overemphasis on senior author papers, both for promotions and and for grant funding, it in some ways de-incentivizes team science, which is a little bit depressing because Mm -hmm. some grant reviewers, and I think it's also just, it's very individual. There's not a lot of rules for, Mm -hmm. for reviewers and they can kind of value think value different aspects of the application however they want and some reviewers think if you're not senior on a paper then your contribution doesn't count and so mm-hmm. to get funding you have to have a lot of senior author papers which means that you you sh- in some ways shouldn't be from the funding perspective collaborating on things that you're not going to be senior author on so it really in some ways the process de-incentivizes team science which can be kind of frustrating which is the opposite of what we were just talking about with collaboration and yeah (laughs) making everything international i think once you're really senior you can kind of get away with it but but you know for those of us who are at the associate professor level you know our assistant professor trying to get our first r01 like we need those senior author papers and so Mm -hmm. the kind of de-incentivization if that's even a word I kind of sounds like one yeah de-incentivizing team Mm -hmm. science I think I think we need kind of a a change in perspective in how we evaluate people if we want to convince you know computational biology folks to help us right because from their perspective they should be writing their own senior author papers not analyzing our data and so we need to find a way to incentivize that that team science to really do transformative things Right. And and I was talking about this actually the second time I'm bringing up Dr. Ellenson, but she, 
what she and I were talking about, the idea that education is changing. And from my perspective, we're changing what learning is like for learners, right? We're, we're doing the flipped classroom method. We're putting lectures online and then doing collaborative discussions instead of making students sit through didactic lectures where you just basically spew information at them for 50 minutes or even longer, which is absurd. And we, she and I talked about how also the experience of being a teacher, of being an academician should also change, right? Everybody can't be good at everything, but that is the academic model, right? You have to be good at researching. You have to be good at teaching. You have to be good at clinical work. And now you're telling me you have to be senior author on every paper, but also be middle author. <laughs> so it's like, you have to be good at, you know, everything. You, can't, you have to have good yeah. in science. You have to have good ideas yeah. and you also have to be yeah. good at writing. Like, yeah, I'm fortunate yeah. that I'm a fairly fast writer. Yeah, so I can I can get a lot on paper, which helps. And then you also have to be good at selling the ideas, you know, out loud in meetings and talks and things like that. So it's right. And if you don't collaborate, and your yeah. colleagues don't see you as someone who's willing to collaborate with them, and not always be the senior author, I don't I don't see how a lot of the yeah like, you have to play well with others in science. I mean, when I was when I was in grad school, yeah, you know, we were deciding who was going to lead a specific aspect of a, of a project. And I got asked to lead it. And I think, I honestly think the reason was that I got along the best with everyone. Like we were all smart. Everybody, oh, for sure. everybody yeah. could have done the science part, yeah. but like the technologists and the staff really liked me and liked working with me. And yeah, that was what, what pushed it over. So I think it goes a long way. Yeah. Undervalued skill, I think to really play well with others at a collaborative level, like, you know, among faculty, among trainees, but also among staff, because we would be nowhere without, you know, the folks who, who make the, make the things run, right? So yes, you need to be I, able yeah. to work well with them too. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. And like I said, you're at the, at the top of the show, you are one of those people who seems to do that very well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're talking about devaluation of science. And I certainly think that that's happened as far as rhetoric. I don't think mm -hmm. that's happened, you know, on the ground level as far as, you know, funding. I think that, that's good to hear. you know, that's good to hear. the yeah. folks in charge of the NIH are solid career scientists, right? And, right. you know, career public servants. And I think that grants are still getting funded, you know, admittedly the, the rates were never great to start with, right? You know, yeah. to get your R01, you have to be in the, the top 10%. So that's, you know, for everyone R01 get, that gets funded, nine don't. But I don't think that's gotten worse recently. I do think the new administration, there's reason to to think that it will be good for cancer research. You know, right. Vice President-elect Harris's mother was a cancer researcher and President-elect Biden, you know, he, when he was vice president, he gave a huge amount of, or not gave, but organized a huge amount of funding for cancer research through the Bo Biden Cancer Moonshot Initiative, right? right. He, right. And he even, you know, went around and spoke at the American Association for Cancer Research. He's had that as a big emphasis for a while. And so I think mm -hmm. that obviously, coronavirus is a is a huge urgent need but i think once once you know we have a vaccine and that is is more under control i think that there's reasons to be optimistic especially as far as cancer research and going forward yeah fingers crossed and that moonshot effort you know we'll see i still the effects the results of the election don't seem real to me so it's hard for me to hope i think but i'm getting there so <laughs> 2020 has been a year full of challenges for everyone. I know I'm not just saying, you know, me, but I know everyone, like all levels of training, academicians and non-academicians, but you and I share a common experience of having young children. I know this because we were pregnant at the same time, <laughs> literally, and we're both trying to work and not 
lose it at least not at least not in like a public embarrassing way so as much as you want I've avoided you can, that so far <laughs> so far exactly right like I said 2020 okay barely not losing it so as much as you want to can you talk about how your job and life have changed since say like February March of this year and you know you were talking about vaccines I've been reading about that lately do you see I was starting to hope and now, you know, even in Rhode Island, I got like an emergency alert to my phone this weekend telling me not to go outside without a mask and not to gather in groups greater than 10. It was like the thing that comes when there's a tornado coming. Yeah. So that's that's good for my mental health. But I'm just saying, like, do you do you see an end to this? Do you are you how do you see this right now? Yeah, I mean, I guess last question first, I was, you know, driving in and heard on NPR the Pfizer vaccine just you know, came yes. back with other results that is 90% effective. I mean, I, I think I'm holding my breath. On yeah. That I mean, sure. obviously yeah. until that happens, masks, social distancing, you know, wash your hands all the time. But I think, you know, once we get an efficacious vaccine, I think that things will change for the better. I've been fortunate at least since the fall that my kids have been in in-person school, masked, distanced. They actually don't mind the masks at all. Like they have really? no, they have no problem wearing them all day. You know, they're, yeah. they're fine. I mean, my two and a half year old, they don't push it in her, you know, preschool. But the two older ones who are four and six, they, they have no problem wearing a mask all day. But in March, you know, all the schools were closed. So we worked out this crazy Jenga where, you know, I worked from 6.30 to 8.30 in the morning. At 8.30, my husband went to work and I had the 8.30 to lunch shift. So I did all the, their school was always in the morning. So I had like multiple different online schools happening, you know. For young, young children, young, not children young, who can yeah, just yeah. like click on links themselves. No, my kids are two, and, four, yeah. and six, yeah. just to be yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah. I know you know, but I, I know. Yeah, my kids I are know. small, they're two, four, and six. Yeah. But, you know, it was a crazy, crazy Jenga. And the other thing was that in March and in April and May, nobody really worked out the best way to do online school. We've had to go remote a few times in the fall because, you know, my two-year-old coughed twice at daycare and needed a COVID test, which I totally support. And we kept everybody yeah. home till we got it. But yeah. they've now figured out how to do online school. And it was much smoother. Right. But in March, they had not. And everybody right. was kind of making it up. So it was it was a hot mess in our house. It was it was a hot <laughs> mess. Like, yeah. you know, there were different synchronous things every day. And they were always at different times. And so you had right. to remember. And everything had a different Google Meet link. And you had to find right. them. It was just like a disaster. Yeah. And then I'd be like trying to do math homework with my oldest daughter. And then it'd be very quiet. And I would think that the little girls were upstairs playing Barbie, but the little girls were upstairs, like putting lotion on the windows or like <laughs> true story. Yeah. <laughs> taking every toy in their room and piling it in the center of the room. That's, that's my youngest child's go-to move these days. So yeah, yeah. there was a window yeah. covered in lotion. There was stripped off clothes <laughs> and washing oneself in the bathroom sink with hand soap. That happened once Is your cat still attacking your toilet paper? Because that would just really be the icing on the cake. <laughs> no, we, we found toilet paper holders that prevent okay. that prevent cat, cat destruction. Though our cats have to be on Prozac. They don't they don't oh. like that we had children and so they'll pee in the house if they're not on Prozac. Mm. So it's a little Poor sad. kitties. Yeah. I know. Our kids are nice to them. I think they just yeah. our the cats, cats are well cats are cats, you know. They got to be kings and queens of the hill for a while there and I it's a hard thing to let go it's of, a hard thing to let go of. yes it is so okay so virtual schooling has, has gotten better and yeah um, they're in person now so yeah so I mean I think we we're grateful for every week they have in school and we're obviously quite privileged that their school is even open I know a lot aren't but we're also just kind of we're there's always the specter ahead that you know school could shut and then we're just kind of mm -hmm. back to yeah to working from home and so 
in the spring, you know, my husband took over in the afternoons because his my husband does private practice, ear, nose, and throat surgery. And his clinic went down at, at the height of the pandemic to half days. Yeah. And so we could kind mm-hmm. of put the day and between working early in the morning and working kind of later in the afternoon, I could kind of get the better part of a full day in. So I never right. went totally dark, right. but at the same time, it was, it was, it was a hard time. And yeah. the other thing was our, our labs for a long time, you weren't allowed to have anybody in them. Right. I think it was about three months with just like nobody in the lab, aside from like keeping essential resources alive. Right. So we, we had like a three month of no productivity except what could be done from home. And then right. we had another three months of about a quarter capacity. And now we're finally up to half capacity and finally making some progress again. But it's it certainly slowed slowed a lot down, which to be honest, doesn't impact me as much because I have enough you know, different people doing different projects that, you know, things are moving forward. But for any given trainee, Mm -hmm. it can be really hard. You know, I have somebody who's trying to graduate with her PhD in the spring and she lost basically six months in the lab. Mm -hmm. So that's really, it's really hard, I think, for, for specific trainees and how it's impacted their, their kind of trajectory. I had another visiting student from China who came in November last Mm -hmm. year. And so she, you know, had three months in the lab. Is she stuck then, here? No, she's back home. So she she came for a year. She had three months in the lab, three months where she could literally do nothing and just sat in her apartment, and then three months where she was part time, and then she just you know went back to China again. So uh-huh. you know, I think it it drastically impacted some specific folks at their at their points in their training in ways that were unpredictable and kind of unavoidable, but at the same time really disappointing for those people. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's impacted everyone in academics with, you know, meetings being canceled and sort of your data doesn't come when you think it's going to come. Yeah. So it, no, April uh, was supposed to be the yeah. biggest month of travel of my career. I was going to give like five talks. It was actually going to be kind of insane. But, yeah. But that all that all went away. Yeah. Yeah. And it's somebody told me they think at the end of of this experience that everything will have an asterisk by it from 2020, right? Like yeah. your your diploma or whatever, it'll be like, yeah, well, that happened during COVID, you know? Yeah. And I try and tell the medical students I teach, I'm, I'm thinking like, one day you're going to be teaching yourself and you're going to be laughing about how your professor kicked, kept kicking herself out of her own Zoom meeting. Like, you'll, that'll be, <laughs> that'll be funny to you. Like, oh, it'll, I have to teach, the, teach the medical students, like do the small group lectures or small group sessions yeah this week, later this week. And I'm, I enjoy it in person, but I'm just really stressed about, again, kicking myself out of the Zoom meeting. I, well, I, the one pro tip that I, and I, no one from Zoom is listening probably, but the one pro <laughs> tip I will give you is that I used breakout rooms and I was one of the only people that did like practice to made my husband and like my in-laws get on a Zoom meeting in my house and like practice breaking them out and then rejoining. But the thing is when you leave a breakout room, the button that's at the top to get back to the main room is close meeting for everyone. Right? <laughs> So if you're not paying attention because it's the top button, you or you close, you shut the whole meeting down. I'm like, really, Zoom? I don't even, why is that button even there? Don't just don't put it there because I obviously I just want to join the main room. What are you doing to me? Anyway, so if you're not paying very close attention, you hit the wrong button. Just a pro tip for anyone listening. And the other thing that's super fun is annotating other people's screens. They seem to like that. There's a little button at the top where you can like draw circles around cells for them while on their computer screen. Yeah. That's yeah, actually fun. my my 11 a.m meeting today is to to 
work with one of our junior faculty members who's really involved in education and really good with yes. Zoom on like how yeah, to yeah, not yeah. screw it up for everybody. Yeah, yeah. So that she'll probably laugh or he or she will probably laugh at me about kicking myself out. I've only done that twice. And I warned them that if anything happens and you get kicked out, just, you know, like go get a drink of water or whatever and just come back in two minutes. I'll restart the meeting. It's fine. They don't care. I think at this point they were all doing Zoom in undergrad. So to them, it's like no big deal. Yeah. You know? And for us, we're all like, tapping our fingers and nervous about it. So I did want to ask you, this is a question I asked for the people in the series I'm doing on GYM pathology, just for those listening who aren't pathologists or who are thinking about becoming basically you one day. What do you do in a typical day where I will assume you will describe two different versions, like a version where you're on clinical service and a version where you aren't? Can you just tell us what your sure. typical work day is like? Yeah. Yeah. Are we are we going non-COVID or pre-COVID or in COVID? <sighs> Probably can, pre-COVID, right? Yeah, we're, we're probably because we're yeah. hoping one day we're not going to be doing this nonsense anymore. <laughs> okay. yeah, for sure. yeah, I mean, the service week, so I do, I'm 85% research now and I have my own lab. So I only do about four weeks every six months of, I do the in-house mucosal GI biopsies at Hopkins, which ends up being, you know, 400-ish slides a day to look at. And so the weeks I'm on service, I'm on a week at a time. And I go in first thing in the morning to the sign-out room and I get my big old stack of cases. They've been previewed by a resident or fellow the day before. And mm-hmm. I sit with that resident or fellow and we, you know, look at the slides together at a multi-headed scope. We go through the their preliminary diagnoses and we talk about, you know, whether they were right, if they were wrong, why they were wrong, that kind of thing. And that typically takes me the whole morning and into the early afternoon. And then I don't release reports as I go um, because it slows down the sign out too much. It's not a good use of the trainee's time. Mm-hmm. And so then I have some more time to just like release all the reports. And then I usually have a couple of hours to then circle back with the folks in my lab. My kind of general structure is that I meet with everybody in my lab once a week and I do two to three meetings a day. So I usually have like the two to four o'clock time every day that I meet with people. And I try to, I try to maintain those on weeks I'm on service. Invariably there's one day where I just get crushed and I can't handle it. And I have to meet on people and I always feel bad about it. But um, so that's kind of the service days is like looking at slides on morning, releasing reports, you know, reviewing stains, that kind of stuff in the afternoon, showing cases in QA if I need to, which I usually have a couple of days that I want to get adult supervision on before I release them. You are an adult, but I know what you mean. Yes, yes. I <laughs> we probably, don't feel like it. You know, yes. I do, because I do much more research, I don't yeah. look at slides as much as some of the other yeah, yeah. really diagnostically focused folks in our division. And so, yeah. you know, they're amazing diagnosticians and also really nice people. And yes. I I learned, you know, I literally learn from them every week I sign out. There's a couple of things I learned last week that I was like, oh, okay, yeah. I'm going to use that yeah. card. But then, so that's the service weeks. And then the non-service weeks, again, I have that kind of two to four time every day that I'm meeting with folks in my lab. And then, you know, those, the days are much less structured. It kind of depends on what I'm working on. I personally write best in the mornings. My brain works best in the mornings. Mm-hmm. And so I try not to schedule a ton of meetings for the morning. And instead I, I use that time to either work on grants or papers or kind of whatever the, whatever the most pressing thing is right now. I have a, a review article I'm trying to finish up. That's going to be my task for the rest of the morning. Yes. And then, you know, the afternoons I meet with people from my lab. And then also I try to schedule my meetings with new collaborators and things like that in the afternoon as well. I there are a few seminars at Hopkins I try to go to regularly. I'm not <laughs> perfect about it, but there are some good ones in, you know, cancer biology and the cancer center as well as the Hopkins Grand Rounds that I that I go to. And then we have our 
GI interesting case conference every Friday afternoon. So I, I fairly religiously go to that because I, it's a great opportunity to learn. I used to sit in the back at that one just to, you know. It's a good one. Also, our division's kind of funny. So. <laughs> so, Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of personalities at Hopkins. Attending joke recently was we we're in a session about residency interviews and people were giving Zoom tips. Mm-hmm. And one of them was like about lighting. And I said, like, <laughs> point the camera so it so it captures your good side. And one of mm-hmm. my, my GI colleagues wrote in the chat to everybody, what if I don't have a good side? Um, which i enjoyed yes Um, i will say that's the other tip i'll give you about zoom is that put a light and i'm not saying i have like mood lighting but a lot of the people who do it put a light behind their face and then you look a little bit like a a vision from a bad movie about an angel like you can't see anything on their face my problem when i when i do it from my my work office is that I have a yeah. window behind me. So it's kind of uh-huh. like, yeah. and yeah. you know, true to Hopkins style, the blinds are broken. So I can't, Perfect. I can't, I, I can't oh, really close them. This seems like a good opportunity to get a green screen and then you could have like really fun pictures behind your head. But I don't know if you could get the Hopkins to pay for that. <laughs> Instead of blinds, guys, I've got this idea. Get me a green screen. And then I can have like a vacation picture behind my yeah. head. Yeah. My, I don't know. my home office, I feel like it, the lighting is reasonable. And I, mm-hmm. I figured out the trick where you put the computer on a few books. So it's not like looking up your nose, which. Yeah. 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 I'm not going to say how many months it took me. <laughs> took me to Nobody looks out. good from that angle. <laughs> Pro tip. <laughs> not even supermodels look good from that angle. And yeah, uh, I do. I do a funny story. A mutual friend of ours. I was texting with her about something and I said, we were talking and then she said, oh, I got to go. I got to go. I got to go fix my hair and put on makeup. And I was like, really? She's like, yeah, I'm supposed to do a uh, virtual chat with residents who are like a meet and greet. And I was like, okay, that's where we are in 2020. I'm going to go fix my hair because I got to get on Zoom. (laughs) What is happening to my life? But whatever, we're here. That's, that's definitely not. Are. That's not where I am. I'm not. Yeah, yeah. I, was like, well, I haven't had a haircut hair. since like February. Oh my god, Laura! I cut my own hair. It's crazy. I I had to. I had such bad split ends. I cut my entire family's hair now too. All of my kids, my father-in-law, my husband, me. A yeah, person. my husband who's I, a surgeon does our kid drums our kids' bangs. Oh, yeah, what a great time to have somebody who's good with their hands and scissors and stuff. Yeah, yeah, he does the um, bangs. We we need to do the ends. Their ends are getting pretty split too. Was it Aaron even <laughs> stitched up one of our kids earlier in the pandemic? Oh, my yeah. youngest was was on a scooter and she like bit it and just like gashed open her chin and we oh. we took her to his office so we could avoid the ER and he just oh definitely he just stitched yeah. her up himself. Oh, heck yeah. And then I wanted to briefly ask you another question I've asked to several other physicians, scientists, people who've come on my show as a woman who is, you're an associate professor, but you're, you know, the interim director of, of your division and you're very successful. You're in a somewhat rare breed and sometimes academics feels like a calling, right? Because you're working for a little bit less money than you could work for in community practice, but then you have some increased flexibility. But there are a lot of expectations on you. So can you talk a little bit about, and as much as you're comfortable, about what it's like for you to be not only a professor and a physician and a scientist, but also a woman doing all those things? Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's challenging for a lot of reasons and some are some are unique to being a woman and some are unique to being a parent and some are just that academia is hard. I mean, I feel mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. there is flexibility in academia, but at the same time, you always feel like you sh- there's something you could be doing. And I think there's no off switch, there's right? no yeah. off switch, right? Like, yeah, you know, yeah. my husband who does community practice ENT, you know, he goes to work 
and then he's done and then he comes home. And for me, you know, any given day, I could take the day off if a kid gets sick, which is certainly a privilege that I have that flexibility. But at the same time, there's pressure for me to produce, but also because I fund my trainees, right? Like I get grants to pay the salaries of my grad students and postdocs. And so if I don't get grants, I don't get fired. I have to fire people. And that's very stressful. Um, Yeah. Because, and I, you know, thankfully I'm not in that position right now. I have enough funding that I'm not to, not to imply to future postdocs who may be listening and I'm going to have to fire you. Like he's well funded. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Um, (laughs) But that, that certainly hangs over you to know that like other people are relying on you for their Mm -hmm. career determining position. Right. So I think that that lack of off switches is hard and that pressure is hard. And certainly early in the pandemic, when I wasn't working as much, I remember having tearful conversations with my husband of like, I need to find a way to work more because I need not for myself, but for my trainees, you know, they mm-hmm. need to, to do stuff so they can move forward. Um, and I think that as a parent, like there are days where you feel like I'm really winning at this parenthood thing. And then but I sucked at work. And then there are days where you're like, I wrote an amazing grant today, but I yelled at my kids and I feel terrible. So, so it's hard to find days where you feel really good about everything you did. Yeah. It it depends on if you're a glass half full or glass half empty kind of person. Like you can always say like, oh, I did really well at one thing today, but maybe I'm a bit more pessimistic and I always feel like I'm doing badly at something, (laughs) which is is really hard. Yeah. It's really hard. And I, that's that's a good point about sort of feeling like you're winning in one area at the expense of another, right? Like there's, I still remember seeing the people who were parents when I was a resident because I wasn't yet, right? I did, I had my child when I was a fellow. So seeing people who were watching the clock and you could, you could almost feel the tension of them knowing that they had to leave at a certain time. And now that's my experience. Yeah. And it is, it's very different because I remember, you know, things as simple as being able to go sit in the cafeteria for a half hour and eat my lunch and take a moment in the middle of the day to like take a short walk outside to like wake myself up or something. And now when I get to work, especially after COVID, I just like get to work and I put my head down and I am just like mowing yeah. through my work. I don't socialize. I, you know what I mean? I don't. No, I like eat at my desk. You know, yeah, I, I eat while I'm signing out cases and it's just like every moment has to be accounted for. I don't know if that's how you're. No, I definitely feel that way. Yeah. You it's know. like, I, it's almost like that feeling when you're trying to like cross a finish line when you're running and you want, you like lean your chest into it. Cause you're just like, everything has to be giving me momentum. I can't, I can't leave anything on the field. Like I have to, no, and exactly. that is exhausting. It is it's exhausting. exhausting. Right. No, I mean, even like when I'm on service, I I come and obviously come to the hospital and work in my office. But when I'm off service, I've been working from home because my kids are in school. And so my house is empty and Mm -hmm. not having the commute, I actually have a longer workday than I'm used to. And there was part of me that was like, oh, I could like take a walk in the middle of the day. I could exercise in the middle of the day. But then like the other Mm -hmm. part of me is like school could close at any time. Like you need to use every hour of that day to get work done because it may go back to like working half days for a while or something like that. And again, like that kind of leaning it, leaning in, not in the, the Cheryl Sandberg sense, but like the runner sense like that. I feel like that kind of heightened effort. I don't know how long that's maintainable. It's really hard. It is really hard. And I don't know, people say women have been less productive in terms of publishing papers since the beginning of the pandemic, which I can totally see. But I actually feel in some ways that I am more productive because I don't know if it's in my head, but I have created increased pressure on myself to be productive because I want to because of the increased flexibility, right? I think a lot of it depends on how supportive your partner is, you know, 
my husband, he probably is not going to listen to this, but he's amazing. He's amazing. And he is also a clinician. And so he has a very demanding job as well, but we find ways to, ways to balance it. And he definitely respects my career and respects my time that I need to spend doing it. But I definitely have mom friends, you know, from my kid's school where their husbands do their job, do the, you know, the men does, does their job, the woman, the wife works too, but like she is also responsible for all the childcare. And like know. in that situation in COVID, like the woman is just screwed career wise, right? Like, yeah, you know, yeah. if you don't have a supportive partner, and I think women are far more likely to be in that position than men, then. Right. right. Or if you happen to have a job that is so rigid about when you are there, right? Because I mean, our job, a lot of it, you can do at different hours. Like I can work weekends and things like that. And and my spouse has always worked from home always. And so it's easier for him to, you know, I mean, he has meetings and things he can't miss, but like get up a few hours early and work in the morning and then do, you know, a couple hours here and a couple hours there and sort of paste it together. But it's so not ideal, right? Because like you said, it's like this, your your forward momentum sort of bleeds into other areas of your life. I mean, the other thing is like my brain just does not work well, like in the evening. So probably I have a couple hours after the kids go to bed, but like the work that I would do at the time would be terrible because my brain is just, I mean, I can respond to emails and like easy stuff, but like, I can't. I, I try to leave my ideas and things like yeah, that, you know, like organizational stuff. But and I, te- I happen, tend, right? Like, you know, I, to- I tend to do that kind of like calendar planning, like all that sort of stuff that makes me actually feel better. Because if I try to like dive into a manuscript, which sometimes you can't avoid doing, right? Because deadlines suck. But if I do that at night, then I sort of turn my brain back on, and then I, I feel like um, I'm, you know, like playing, a, like I'm like the goalie, and I'm like trying to prevent people from getting by me, and I can't turn my brain back off. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I try not to do like really intense scholastic work in the evenings, but everybody's different. I'd much rather do it at like 4.30 in the morning than 8.30 at night. So. Oh, I would too. I'm definitely yeah. like a an early early morning person. It's the other, just the, yeah. we're talking about being a woman in science and, yeah. you know, we've talked a lot about parenthood in science, but I think the other, the other thing that is hard is there have been many meetings where I'm the only woman speaking yeah. or the only woman on the panel mm-hmm. and I've just gotten used to it and it's only been recently that I've thought about trying to actively try to change that, right? You know, I've, I've been reading a lot of perspectives about when you get invited to speak, trying to use that privilege of that invitation to improve the diversity on the panel. Right. Um, and I think that that's going to be an important thing for me going forward to try to do that. But it is very, it's a very weird feeling the first few times you go and you're like, oh, I'm one of like, two women speakers in this this meeting of like 30 speakers did you um, see the thing where francis collins did that do you know what i'm talking about i uh, didn't see it i mean I know who he is but i didn't yeah know. he basically said like i will not be on a panel if i am the if there are no women or minorities like i'm not coming you just yeah. forget it i won't say yes so i it's interesting that but so the hard thing is you have to have someone who's cognizant of these issues like you but also has enough clout wow, to, yeah to say like i'm gonna give you an ultimatum, right? And you have to listen to me. But um, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of borderline. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I think you're there. Uh, but I, but it, it is interesting because, you know, I've thought a lot about equity and inclusion and it's, it's a hard thing to do in medicine because it's not, especially during COVID, right? There's so much other stuff going on, but I think people, it's, it's sort of like when I tell trainees and I don't know if this is how you approach sign out. I know everyone does it differently, but I, when I look at a slide, I always tell trainees like, 
I'm not saying this is the zebra thing, right? Or I'm not saying there is invasion in this case. But if you don't tell yourself to look for that thing, you probably won't find it. Yeah. So when you go into a situation like you're talking about being a speaker on a panel, if you don't have inclusion and equity like in the forefront of your mind, you'll get caught up in the process of like making the talk and accepting the invitation or traveling to the meeting or whatever it is. So it just sort of has to be like, yeah, on on the inhale, it's something you think about. And then on the exhale, it comes out of your mouth. Does that make sense? Yeah. And there's also, I mean, there's so many different levels to it, right? There's trying to promote equity at the faculty level. So once, you know, women in underrepresented minorities get to the faculty level, helping to elevate them so they can get promoted and get more visible. But then there's also the whole pipeline question, right? How can we, how can we improve opportunities for folks from underrepresented groups, you know, to get positions in residency, to get positions in PhD programs. And I, I certainly try to do that on the individual level, you know, with my, with my trainees in my lab, you know, my lab is, is super diverse and has, you know, black women, Latinx folks, LGBT folks, people from all over the world. And I'm really proud of that. But at the same time, that's a, you make big differences in lives of individuals. But I think thinking about how to make more systemic change is really important as well. Yeah. And I've interviewed yours and my friend Marissa White on this show. And she's, she has an interesting theory about the pipeline concept, you know, that it's not like a straight line and all this great work is going on in that area. But I think I hope, actually, that as a country, we're actually waking up to the idea that this is much a much bigger problem than we realize. So I think that's actually happening. I choose to be hopeful about that. Yeah, um, I think it is, too. Yeah. I think it's yeah. just important to, to, to never think that we've succeeded and we can stop, right? There's always exactly. more to do. Exactly. Even even at a place like Johns Hopkins, even at a place like Brown, which I would probably consider are more aware of these topics and trying harder than most places, but or than a lot of places I have worked, I will speak from my experience. But even even at my institution, there's still a lot of work to do. So I mean um, I think that we Hopkins and I'm sure Brown as well, we do a good job of when somebody from an underrepresented group gets to the residency application phase to be like, oh, this person's great. We need to consider them fully. But I think what we don't do is consider like all the barriers to getting to that phase and how we can oh, yeah. again, improve the pipeline earlier. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Providing support and that the stuff that Dr. White is doing with like going into high schools and stuff. Yeah. So, so and not cool. saying we shouldn't support the people at the residency phase and the faculty phase, like that's super, super important. But I right. think that that's not enough. No, no, I agree. And to move from a serious topic, I wanted to talk about some things that are not serious because <laughs> my friend. I put some fun questions at the end. I don't know if you made it to this part of the outline. I know this is going to sound really dumb to people, but I want to talk to Laura about lunch. So lunch is something that I love lunch. Why? Because I'm always hungry. And when I was a fellow at Johns Hopkins, I remember, you know, for people who haven't been there, the multi-headed scope room, which I assumed is, is not operating in the same way during COVID, but during normal circumstances, there's, I don't know, maybe six multi-headed scopes that have a lot of heads. So the GYN scope had maybe... Mm, 10 heads, 12 heads. I don't remember. But a lot of days it was full, right? Because I would have a couple residents, a couple med students, maybe like, I don't know, like a GYN oncology fellow. There were just always people rotating through. So even as a relatively new sort of air quotes faculty member, because I was signing out cases, I would be in charge of this big group. And we would be on cases, you know, like our fifth placenta in a row. And so then I would start making people tell me what they're going to eat for lunch, which I think be the only person who ever (laughs) made these people talk about that. But I love food. So Laura... 
eats the same thing, I think, for lunch every day. So I wanted to talk to you about that because I'm fascinated by people who are able to do the same thing every day for lunch. And maybe that's the reason why you're so brilliant. So let's hear it. I mean, some of it, I think, it, I mean, I'm happy to tell people what it is ate for lunch, but I think conceptually some of it is just the decision fatigue, right, of making <laughs> yeah. so many decisions throughout the day. Yeah. I just need uh-huh. something to be brainless, right, that I, like, make my same lunch that I make all the time. <laughs> I love it. And as I, I told Natalie via email, my dad actually did the same thing when he was teaching. I don't know if he does it anymore now that he's home, but he ate the same lunch every day for years. And I can tell you what my lunch is and then tell you what his was because they're quite different. So I eat, and again, it's a little bit embarrassing because some of it is just laziness. I eat what one might generously call a spinach salad, but it's just like a bowl of baby spinach with some dressing on it. And it's a good bowl too. It's, it's like a, a decent bowl. Yeah, and yeah. then, you know, several pieces of, I eat an apple and a banana every day. I can't, I'm so lazy that this is like the fruit that like doesn't require effort. Like I don't have to, you know, cut it yeah. or anything. I just throw it in my lunch. And then I make a wrap out of avocado and cheese and that is, and a yogurt. And that is my lunch every day. But the spinach is, I mean, like it's the, an intense the, amount of spinach. Yeah, I think maybe you're putting all the great B vitamins or something into your brain. The too, funny so thing was, when I was pregnant, I had an aversion to spinach. Like I couldn't eat yeah. it, so I had to yeah. like totally switch up my lunch things when I was pregnant because I couldn't handle. Which you would think like fully good for little babies and their neural tubes, but for whatever reason, I just couldn't couldn't handle it. Oh, but my, I should, my dad's lunch is fairly, fairly comical. Oh, yeah, your dad's lunch. So my dad, who I should point out is a very healthy, normal weight, 70 year old man, he would eat a American cheese and margarine sandwich, a -hmm. bag of potato chips, and then two different Little Debbie snack cakes. One was, (laughs) one was always the Swiss rolls, and one was like a a mix and match, either like the oatmeal cream pies or the Star Crunch Mm -hmm. or the Nutty Bars. And it was to the point where, at one point, one of his colleagues wrote to Little Debbie and told mm. told Little Debbie that he ate two Little Debbie snack cakes every year. And Little Debbie sent him a case and thanked him for his like support of the company and sent him like Little Debbie magnets and like Little Debbie swag. So when you're not working or taking care of your children, what do you do for fun when you can't like, you know, Baltimore's great museums and stuff like you probably can't do that stuff anymore. What are you all doing? Yeah, I mean, we while the weather's still nice, we're trying to get the kids outside as much as we can. Yeah. We we took them scooting. They have scooters. They got scooters from Santa last year. So we took them scooting to Fort McHenry this weekend. We did the zoo outside with masks. You know, like we used to spend a lot of time not planning the weekends, but, you know, we'd try to make play dates for our kids and things like that. And, you know, they had swim lessons and my older daughter was doing ballet and now like we're not really doing any of that because Mm -hmm. we don't feel like any of that's worth the COVID risk and so now we you know walk around the neighborhood and go to the playground and yeah it's like being in a little bubble I don't know Mm -hmm. I in some ways I appreciate the the simplicity it's the pandemic has given to our free time like I don't know that we'll we were never super over scheduled because our kids are so small but I I think I'll be more conscious of avoiding that because it's it's nice to have unstructured time where you just Play, not running, right? play Uno oh, in the right. afternoon, you know, where we yeah. do a, my kids are obsessed with crafts and, you know, nice. all kinds of stuff. I, as you know, I'm also obsessed with crafts. So if we were not in a pandemic, I would be your glitter go-to person. I could do that <laughs> it sounds like we're doing the best we can. And yeah. I think this is going to be an excellent show for people to listen to. And I hope they realize, you know, that, that you've 
they've gotten to benefit from your advice like I have. So I appreciate you doing this. I know you're very busy and you're dying to get back to writing that review article. <laughs> <laughs> dying to. Oh, no, and like, you get to go learn how to teach on Zoom. So, I you know. Do. I just, I, I mean, as you've said, it's not the end of the world if I hang up on them, but I hope I don't hang up on them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just know that even if you do, I've done it more times than you will have done it. So no problems. It's all good. Yeah. So, all right. Good luck out there, friend. Thank you. Good, good to talk by. to you. I really enjoyed it. All right. Bye. Bye.